0: paranormal radio and now here's gene
1: steinberg so listeners as you know every time we do a show like this we occasionally run into difficulties with skype connections because skype hates us where <laughs> microsoft hates me because i use a mac but whatever it is tim schwartz is our special guest co-host and we have dave mason no relation to the Dave Mason, who's the rock star, but another Dave Mason, and David Altman. They are responsible for a new documentary called A Tear in the Sky, and we're going to rip through that a little bit later in the show, but first I want to talk about an event that occurred on Tuesday, which is May 17, in the halls of the U.S. Congress. The first congressional hearings... On UFOs in decades and decades. And I don't know if either of you or you, Tim, heard the hearing or watched it on YouTube or something, but I want to get reactions if you are familiar with it. So let me start alphabetically. David Altman, did you see
2: it? Yes, I did. Um, I actually tried going through it a few times. Every time I watched it, it just seemed like I got a little bit angrier, so I, I kind of had to slow down. I mean, you know, it, it had it has high points, it had slow points. I didn't go into it really expecting disclosure, but at the end of it, I was surprised about a few things that they they mentioned. Um, probably the big, my biggest surprise was them bringing up the Wilson documents.
1: Would you tell our listeners, because not everybody follows the ins and outs and the nooks and crannies, what those documents are?
2: Far be it for me to be an, an expert on the documents, but these are some papers that were found in Edgar Mitchell's collection of documents after his, he passed away. I believe it was his kids that were you know, going through them, through all of his papers, which were probably a goldmine for people like us. And in these documents were some uh, notes that were allegedly uh, done by uh, Dr. Eric Davis, and they contain notes he had taken in different meetings, and I believe the the big one was with Admiral Wilson. And in these documents, they they talk about pretty much, um, you know, reverse engineering and crafts and entities and and a whole a whole lot. There's actually uh, going to be a book coming out soon by one of our compatriots from our film, uh, Michael Hall. He's writing a book called think it's core secrets which is a a couple of words that were very strongly used in those documents that makes sense
1: dave mason what do you think about all of it
2: i have
3: not had a chance to review what was discussed on may 17th i have seen some of the commentaries on it so it sounds like much of it was used uh selective cases where not the compelling cases but the non-compelling cases and then also exclusion of cases that were very important That were not even brought up or or examined, almost as if they selected the data that was somewhat limiting so that uh, they wouldn't have to be put on the spot to offer more disclosure. So you just select the cases that are not in the spotlight and then just debunk it if you can.
1: They didn't do a lot of debunking, but it reminds me of what Kevin Randall said about Mm -hmm. the new investigation. He called it Condon (laughs) 2.0. There
3: you go. Yeah, yeah. the exclusions, the Condon report that Stanton Friedman uh, was was not too fond of.
1: Exactly. And the thing is here, of course, is they were very careful and circumspect in denying ET connection. We don't have evidence. What kind of evidence would that mean? Well, bodies, crashed spaceships, physical evidence. Without physical evidence, they can't go there. At the same time, they didn't dispute it. They just said, we don't have evidence. And we can argue about things like Roswell, etc. but that gives them an out.
3: I think that what their fear is, if there were some cases where they, they needed to come forward on it, that if there was an admission to a cover-up or an admission to this kind of information or data, then they know that there would be a lot of anger and even maybe some hostility toward them because of the cover-up. And so better to just deny everything to minimize any damage that might be incurred if, if they actually admitted uh, to the truth.
2: Maybe some lawsuits as well. Yeah.
1: Lawsuits, how
2: so? Well, I mean, think back to how many people, you know, uh, have lost their jobs, um, have, you know, in the past, been been driven to to points of depression and you know unhealthy mental problems and if this is something that they knew and were doing to people you know even i mean i don't want to talk benowitz because you know that's something else but you know people won't be happy
1: well benowitz just sue rick Doty, and you'll be finished with it
2: (laughs) and maybe
1: and maybe mr moore possibly but of course the problem with that is the statute of limitations would have long since expired
2: yeah i'm sure well i mean you know i'm not sure how long uh that would hold you know i don't know what the statute is on something like that if there is, if even is one
1: if the doty murdered that. we're not accusing him of anything but if doty murdered somebody there'd be no statute of limitations
2: well, no, yeah, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I know, I know Rick and, uh, you know, he's he's a friend of mine and, you know, it, it but it, it, he's a friend Another, you know, I work, I work in TV and occasionally, um, I help him out with some, some stuff, some stuff on, on that end, but we've never, I've never asked him about it. I've never brought it up. We talk about business and that that's that, you know?
1: You know, Doty. what is your perception of all the things he claims?
2: You know, like I said, I, you know, I, I those claims and everything I know mostly from, you know, books like like Greg Bishop's Project Beta, um, you know, dif- different lectures I, I've heard. You know, like, like I said, I, I've never I've never asked him ab- about that case or about anything with, with Dolce or anything that happened. Um, I, you know, I. I, I do occasionally ask him questions about ufology, but not about that. But I take everything I hear from Doty with a grain of salt. Uh, he's a very nice man, but I can't believe everything that he tells me. <laughs> you know?
1: We had Dodie on the PowerCast on the March 18th, 2018 episode. I don't even want to begin to summarize what he said, I just ask listeners. Check it out, March 18th, 2018. It's on our site. It's in your podcast app, either if you're just a regular subscriber or listener or subscribe to the PowerCast Plus. So listen to it. Make your own decisions. I have no decision. I think he likes to tell stories. And the thing is, you can't prove or disprove any of them.
2: You know, I'll I'll say one thing. The, The man has a lot of guts because... You know, he's not, he doesn't have a lot of fans in ufology, but that does not make, you know, keep him away from doing interviews and interacting with people. I mean, I don't think I could do it. I don't think, I don't think I could, I could be, a, you know, a person that is disliked that much and still kind of show my face. So it, t- it takes a lot of courage in my opinion.
1: Dave Mason, what do you think?
3: Um, I, don't know much about him, so I really couldn't give you an intelligent answer. I'm more of a guy who develops technologies, and um, and so I don't spend a lot of time researching a lot of the names in the field of ufology. I, I am familiar with uh, you know, Stanton Friedman's work and, and maybe a few others, but so I'm somewhat of a novice when it comes to uh, some of these other uh, researchers and what they've done or haven't done.
1: You might be better off.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, sometimes it's, it's a disappointment uh, because you follow something and then you find out that it it, it was on a foundation of sand or it wasn't really uh, you know verified, and and that's what I think is one of the problems in, in this field is that there are a lot of um, individuals. What I'm finding who are self promoting with a narrative, and and then that narrative gets copied and pasted in other forums, and then. When somebody researches that narrative, they see that it's, it's available on different websites. Therefore, it's been indoctrined as factual.
1: David Altman, Dave Mason, Gene Steinberg, Tim Swartz, you're in The Paracast. Hey, listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about after the Paracast.
6: Extendivite testimonials on Amazon are very informative. Here's one, Rad, consistent results when used for heart problems. This product has been a godsend for my father who suffered a heart attack about two years ago. He was prescribed medications for his condition, which was so serious that if he hadn't made it to the hospital in time, he would have died but he hasn't been able to afford most of the medications. After researching alternatives, he tried extendivite. While taking ExtendoVite, he has consistently lower blood pressure and experiences less angina. We are currently on our fifth bottle. I enthusiastically recommend this product, and I am grateful that it is available. To get your Extendivite today, go to Extendivite.com. That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Or call us at 1-877-928-8822. Extend your life with extend.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: We continue. The topic we'll be getting to in a moment is a tear in the sky. Dave Mason and David Altman are with us. To the gentlemen who were responsible for the film. I'm going to talk about that more in a moment. We started out talking about ufology in general and also the recent attempt at congressional hearings in the halls of Congress, lasting a total of 90 minutes. I read about it. I didn't watch it. Maybe I should have, but it was probably as boring as the document from last year, if our listeners recall, where a preliminary report was released probably written by one of the interns. I see a great reaction to that. (laughs) I wasn't sure who you were waiting for to answer. That's okay. Yeah, But do you agree with me? It was a very poorly prepared document.
3: What I was going to point out, there is a video that was taken last year and publicized, and it was a night vision video of a triangle which, uh, I knew the instant that I watched it, that it was a defocused image intensifier type night vision with the field stops within the camera lens causing a triangular shape. And I replicated that using my own uh, night vision and placing black tape in front of the lens, defocusing it and looking at stars. And I made a uh, private YouTube video just to, you know, reference the timestamp on it. But at the time, when that was released and the fact that it was released by the government, I thought that it was some form of muddying the waters and so to speak, so that we would, they would be able to publicize it, get people excited and then say, haha, it was just nothing but, you know, a mistake and it was nothing more than, you know, the defocused night vision. It could have been that or it could have been somebody mistakenly took video, not having experience, had it defocused turned it in the video because they were very intrigued by what they recorded. And before it could go through the vetting process of being uh, debunked by its own internals, somebody took that copy and then uh, facilitated it, not knowing that it was actually not gone through the proper chains uh, to be debunked. Because I'm sure they have to turn in videos constantly just to verify before they they stand behind it or actually make it a, uh, a genuine document. But certainly it, it was not a real event. So I'm kind of surprised they went ahead and took that in, and put a negative on it. But then I'm not surprised because it's, it is a way to put cast doubt on other videos that have been submitted that, that they may try to come forward and try to debunk those as
1: well. It gives professional skeptics like Mick West, who has also been on the Paracast, by the way, grist mm-hmm. for his mill, something to debunk.
3: And debunking is, is important because I, I, get a lot of videos and photos sent to me for analysis and most of them I find are, uh, you know, the prosaics or somebody's taken a video of a satellite that's, that is flashing because it's rotating and reflecting the sunlight and they don't have it in focus and they think it's communicating, uh, and it's, it's nothing more than a satellite. And then we have all the, uh, the, the satellite arrangements from, the starlink satellites and and they can be very you know striking and impressive and and somebody inexperienced will get the impression that it's something extraterrestrial but i get a lot of that stuff submitted and i i also expected when covid broke out that there would be numerous people behind pcs manufacturing fake uh, ufo videos and i saw numerous uh, fake ufo videos you could look at them and see shadows were in the wrong place uh, they did th- mistakes where they had explosions where the sound was instant and there should have been a time delay given the distance of the explosion. Those kinds of things were, were readily identified as, as, uh, frauds. So mm-hmm. this kind of stuff has to be debunked. But oftentimes what I find is when you have something that has got, um, very substantial providence and very clear video taken where you know the camera aspect ratio, you know the proportions, and and then you hear explanations that are prosaic that couldn't possibly apply. In fact, those prosaic explanations are often more ridiculous than accepting the fact that it's an anomalous object. And I, I think that where this stems from is you, you get people who are professional debunkers because that's the role they're playing. If you're getting compensated, whether it's attention or financial reward, you're going to play that role regardless. Or if, if the subject matter goes against your religious beliefs, then you're going to play that role as debunker. Debunkers also bask in the limelight because their names are mentioned. And, and so if I was a professional debunker, my
8: Clash, name was
2: called cough, out. Cough.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get your name called out every time, you know, every time a video or photo or story comes out and I get my name called out, As Mr. Debunker, of course I'm going to debunk it. I'm going to look for every little detail and offer every plausible explanation for what was recorded because I like having my name called out. Many of the debunkers are using that role as another means of self-promoting. And it's also the same as the people who are taking the content that we have And running with it, saying that, you know, they're here to take our precious metals or they're here to brainwash us or they're here to change the world. And oftentimes not having enough of a foundation to substantiate those claims.
1: Well, the thing here is that people think that people in the UFO field try to make money by promoting bogus claims and they forget the possibility that people who are professional debunkers are doing it for that particular reason.
3: Exactly. Exactly. you got to look at where you can play both sides of the fence. And I, I actually see it on the examination of video data or, you know, if it's thermal camera data, that you have people who will promote a video without actually examining that video and figuring out that it's actually been frauded, that it's fake, or that it, it is. And um, it does have a prosaic explanation. It just happens to be the camera was at a certain angle. So the the object appeared anomalous, you know, people will run with that. And I've seen debunkers go over videos and, and they demonstrate that they don't understand physics or understand the parameters of the video. And and, and those are things that I, I see often. And so I very rarely see anybody doing a proper analytical process on a video to arrive at a proper conclusion. Then that it, it just seems like before they approach, they've already made up their minds. They're going to either prove that it's real or prove that it's not, and not just look at the data and and then come to conclusions where you can rule out certain things, but there's certain other aspects that can't be ruled out, but you can't really always give a 100% definitive description on every video as to what the objects can be.
9: Well,
1: of course, we have the Tic Tac videos, which have not been satisfactorily explained.
3: Uh, yeah, and, and the reason for that is because uh, on, on the military thermal cameras, and this is uh, the domed cameras that are um, mounted on aircraft, they don't offer uh, you know temperature readout because the design of that camera, it, it has actually a, a more simpler germanium lens design. And what that does is it allows the maximum amount of medium-wave IR and long-wave uh, IR or infrared. And the purpose of that camera is to make rapid identification of, you know, threat identification. So they don't have passive temperature readouts, which is would, would have been helpful in that particular video.
1: Dave Mason, okay. David Altman, Gene and Tim, you're in
10: The Paragast.
11: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
0: USA Radio News
1: with Kenneth Burns.
13: The U.S. and South Korea will consider joint military exercises to deter North Korea's nuclear threat. Pyongyang has defended its nuclear program as necessary against what it described as threats from the U.S. It has long described joint military exercises as rehearsals for an invasion, but allies have described the exercises as defense. Both President Biden and South Korean President Moon Jae-in affirmed in remarks at a joint news conference that their shared goal is to complete denuclearization of North Korea. Australia's Labour Party defeated the Conservatives in an election this week for the first time in about a decade. Prime Minister Scott Morrison quickly conceded defeat, citing a need for an Aussie leader to attend a Tokyo summit next week. Prime Minister-elect Anthony Albanese and his party promised more financial assistance and a robust social safety net for the country. This is USA Radio News. A tornado that touched down in northern Michigan killed at least two people and injured more than 40. Governor Gretchen
14: Whitmer has declared a state of emergency for Ossego County and one of the top officials saying the town of Gaylord has suffered catastrophic damage. There are reports of structures being demolished, trees toppled, and cars flipped over.
15: We saw a dumpster lid fly across the parking lot to the point we thought that it was a car hood. And so then we're going, this is getting a little bit stronger than what we would have thought.
14: Tiffany Pollard from Gaylord. That audio courtesy of Fox 17 in Michigan. From the USA Radio News Phoenix Bureau, I'm Tim Berg.
13: The youngest of 10 black people killed at a Buffalo supermarket in a racist attack will be laid to rest this weekend. 32-year-old Roberta Drury was at the Topps Friendly Market to buy groceries at the time of the shooting. She is being remembered as someone with a big heart and quick with a laugh. You are listening to USA Radio News.
5: Did you know that you could easily be saving up to 90% on your taxes by simply making a phone call? That's right. The Fortune 500, the globalists, all the big billionaires and millionaires, they know about the loopholes written into the law where most of them pay almost zero tax. In fact, many of them pay no tax. You even see it on the news. How are they able to do that? But the common person can Dot com. That's GCNtaxcut.com. The only way you miss out is not making the phone call. Make it now.
16: Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of AD After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: The movie we're going to get to in just a moment here is a tear in the sky. And we have David Mason and David Altman. And for the sake of clarity, Mr. Altman will be referred to as David, and David Mason will be referred to as Dave. Dave, let's continue where we left off in the last segment.
3: Okay. So the military cameras mounted on crafts are meant to make rapid threat identification and then vetting angles and vetting positions so that. A rapid uh, reaction can be uh, deployed on it. The difference between those cameras and, say, the industrial grade that have passive temperature measurement is that the industrial grade have extra lens elements to create a bandpass of wavelength and then be able to do calculation based on you know a microbolometer response to uh, certain wavelengths. That will give you temperature data. But what I find that what is being debunked on, say, like the Tic Tac is they don't really give any real common frame of reference for that debunking. And one debunking uh, aspect I've seen is the claim that it is some sort of a lens flare. Now, understand, I own several thermal imaging cameras, industrial grade. I brought eight of them to our expedition where the movie uh, was filmed. They're $50,000 cameras. And I've taken those cameras and tried to create the um, lens flare theory using the sun which is actually not good to aim one into the sun but it could not replicate a sun flare you could replicate say if you were to have a dirty lens a lot of condensation you could you could get image smearing but you wouldn't wouldn't create ghosts from that so that's one of the things that I've seen is is being offered and clearly to me it is being stated by somebody who has not done any research in thermography nor have they ever uh, probably never owned a thermal camera
1: So then what kind of tools do we need to record UFOs? I mean, these military planes are there to look for threats. They're not looked to get the ins and outs of things that might be beyond what you normally expect to see.
3: Well, what I like about the the industrial grade is the temperatures that are uh, made available. You can do um, passive temperature measurements of objects. In fact, you could measure their temperatures Below uh, freezing point, uh, my cameras will range down to uh, below minus eighty Fahrenheit, which is pretty cold. About that's about minus sixty two Celsius. I've recorded over the years since two thousand five, when when I stumbled on this accidentally, many anomalous shaped objects, objects that are rectangular, triangular, boomerang, uh, trifoil, uh, things that are cylindrical, things that measure very cold. They're picked up on long wave infrared thermal cameras, and you can get if you get passive temperature measurements and you measure objects as being very cold, then that separates it from the you know conventional aircraft that are often measuring very hot and even if if you take a i say a commercial jet that's up at uh, thirty thirty five thousand feet elevation and maybe the ambient temperature at that elevation is is maybe minus 30 or minus 40 Fahrenheit, depending where you are, the energy from the Earth's crust, so this is the ground-based energy, will be reflected back downward from that aircraft to the thermal camera that's measuring it, so you'll get a much hotter temperature. And every time I've measured higher-altitude jets, they always measure very hot relative to the background. And so this is where I'm able to make a determination that we have a phenomenon where... Many of the aerial objects are below freezing temperatures, and also, I find objects that are invisible. In fact, my very first experience was a—I was taking a seventy-thousand-dollar thermal imaging camera that I was using in my test lab. I took it home for the purpose of recording passenger or, or commercial jets flying overhead. I thought, "Oh, that should look cool," and I was panning the camera around, and two very large cold objects appeared within the camera view and I looked straight up and I didn't see a thing. And I tracked it, I recorded it, they measured minus 30 Fahrenheit. And that was the event that triggered uh, my interest. And then later, using multiple cameras, I would record an object transitioning across two different cameras, and then I could look with my PVS 7 Gen 3 Plus night vision and not see them. But they were picked up on two separate FLIR cameras. And the difference is, I was imaging objects that were visible in the FLIR at 13,000 to 14,000 nanometers, while with the Gen 3 night vision, I'm only seeing down to 1,000 to 1,100 nanometers. So separate wavelengths is what uh, would differentiate them. So what these things are, I don't know, but I know what they're not. And that's the only conclusion I can come up with.
1: Let's talk about backgrounds so folks know what you've done, and then we can get into the mm-hmm. film. Dave Mason, what's your background in studying this field?
3: In studying the UFO field? Uh, well, that goes back to uh, when I was 13, I was researching uh, you know, UFO documents, checking them out at the library. This was way, way before the internet existed. And I was studying the phenomenon, and the thing that really intrigued me was the fact that there, there were reports of these objects creating magnetic disturbances, compasses moving crazy, um, and, and in fact effect, the other things, that they had lights that were pulsating. And pulsing lights, to me, indicates there's some form of communication or attentive communication. I don't believe that they use lights to see where they're going or that it's a byproduct of their propulsion systems. And And so as a kid, the first thing I tried to do to address this thing was I built a magnetic field detector using a compass and using a photo transistor and an LED, what this would do is if there was a deviation from magnetic north to create a compass to spin, it would set off an alarm, a a sonic alarm, so that you know that, hey, there's a UFO, go outside and see what's going on. So I did that at age 13, and then when I was 17, I built a pair of photodiode binoculars where I I installed a photodiode and and built in a low-noise JFET circuit so that we could listen to aerial objects that emitted light. An example: I can listen to aircraft in daytime. I can hear the light reflecting off the wings. You can actually hear the wind and the engine vibration, and uh, as well as the light, the the uh, auxiliary lights. And you can also listen to starlight. So you can you can point at at stars and hear the scintillation of the stars, what you'd call the sparkles that you see. And the object with that is to be able to listen to aerial objects and, and identify whether or not they are transmitting some sort of data. Um, the other thing uh, that can be related to it is the, I, I can take that information and transmit it back to the source. So I can take the binoculars and if I have a object and it's transmitting some kind of data, I can relay back with an internal defocused laser and the laser is modulated in intensity by what's received by the binoculars. So if an object's in the sky and it's transmitting, I can beam it right back at them as a, it, through a defocused laser and, and hopefully uh, provoke some sort of response.
1: Have any of these inventions produced a positive result?
3: I believe so. Um, there was a time... I was broadcasting on, this was on my smaller light wave transmitter. This wasn't used in the movie. What's in the movie is this three-way transmitter. It's a bigger, much bigger scale. And I had uh, consulted with a, uh, an expert that knows about whales and dolphins. And I asked, um, you know, I need some audio recordings of whales and dolphins that are happy. Uh, you know that are that are out in the wild and they're celebrating. I don't want recordings of somebody in a storage tank or a a depressed whale or, or dolphin. So I obtained these recordings and I broadcast them on my lightwave transmitter. And this was back in 2019. And I had a had two thermal cameras running. And when I came back to examine the videos i recorded uh, an object that appeared to be ai um, mean and that it did look like a tic tac and it was moving at about a 45 or 25 degree angle with respect to its trajectory so it was sideways as it zipped across the screen
1: we have david dave tim and gene you're in the pericast <laughs>
18: I'm Ben Utek. I played high school, college, and pro football, helping my team win the 2006 championship. It was an amazing day, but it can't compare to the joy I feel every day with my loving wife and three beautiful daughters. My football career ended after I suffered my fifth concussion. Did you know that over a million athletes suffer a concussion each year? That includes boys and girls, every age, every type, and level of sport. It isn't always clear that a player has had a concussion, so parents, athletes, and coaches need to learn about concussion signs and symptoms. The American Academy of Neurology recommends athletes thought to have a concussion be immediately removed from play and not returned until assessed by a healthcare professional trained in concussion. This isn't just about sports. It's about your brain. When in doubt, sit it out. Learn more at aan.com slash concussion. That's aan.com slash concussion. A message from the American Academy of Neurology.
19: Hello, this is John Burroughs, one of the witnesses to the Rendlesham UFO incident. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: Okay, Dave, Mason, tell us more about the particular event that you were referring to in the previous segment.
3: Okay, so I was transmitting the, the recorded sounds on the wave transmitters of, of whales and dolphins in, in their mood. And I recorded on the thermal camera a thing that was, it was tic-tac shaped. But it, and it, when it moved across the sky, it was not moving in minimal air friction, you know, minimal aeronautics uh, friction. It was tilted at about a, a 25 degree angle, moved across And I think it was about a half hour later, I had a a cold orb object also transition across the field of view. So that was what was copied. And when I was transmitting those sounds, I don't know whether or not that was just a coincidence or if there was actual relaying of of response on that thing. But definitely, I think that because by transmitting uh, broad spectrum or spread spectrum uh, light, uh, you can get a response because everything else we're transmitting in light is just in the form of 60 cycles from street lights and house lights or or pulses that are coming off of um, LED automobiles that it would stand out amongst the noise and possibly provoke a response. And if you think about that, many of the NASA videos that have been recorded in outer space from the um, International Space Station or the space shuttle, uh, there's there's numerous videos of objects with light that are pulsing now that that visual pulse that you see on the cameras could be asynchronous to the uh, to the object the object should be pulsing at a very high frequency but it's asynchronous to the camera frame rate kind of like if you've ever taken your iphone and tried to videotape a computer screen and you'll see that it's chopped or it has these funny lines to it i'm certain that there has to be information and it's our job to be able to make that establish that contact and then try to interpret that data, which I think that that's going to be really virtually impossible for us because whatever they're transmitting, it's going to go over our heads. So the best thing we can do is just take that transmitted data and send it back to them to let them know we're
20: trying. Tim. Oh, I want to hear uh, uh, what about uh, David Altman. How did you get involved in all this, David.
2: My story's pretty similar to Dave Mason's, uh, minus the inventive uh, genius on it. <laughs> uh, I, too, uh, did the library round uh, when I was about seven or eight years old. My parents were divorced or had just gotten divorced. And my mom and I had gone to live with my grandmother, who was a librarian. So after school, I would go directly to her library where she worked and she'd point me in the direction of where the old books were on all the universal monsters like the Wolfman and Frankenstein and Dracula. And after tearing through all those books, of course right next to them in the next aisle were all the paranormal and UFO books. And uh it's all uphill from there. So and uh you know both of you can
20: can answer this question. How did you get involved
2: uh, with uh, a tear in the sky. Uh, I guess I can take that one first. Um, so I became a uh, a member of UAPX uh, a couple of years ago. U- UAPX is the team from the movie um, that was founded by Kevin Day, who was the f- one of the first witnesses to come forward um, from the Nimitz encounter. Uh, the group contained at that time, uh, you know, Kev- Kevin Day, Gary Voorhees and Jason Turner from from the Nimitz encounter. It also had a, a few scientists and a, a tech guru named David Mason. Um, I had met Kevin Day originally. Uh, I don't know if you guys had have ever seen the show Project Blue Book. But, uh, yeah, Dave, David O'Leary uh, is a friend of mine, and him and I went to uh, Vegas to a conference for a UFO Megacon, and that's where I met Kevin Day. Him and I hit it off. Um, and he asked me to to join UAPX. Um, and he asked me to uh, be a researcher and also uh, handle their media. They were getting a lot of media requests, especially after the new york uh, you know the New York uh, Times article. And uh, I have a background. I work in television. Um, I do consultant and development work, uh, mostly on all the UFO shows uh, that are on TV. Uh, I've worked on all the series. Not all of them, but I mean, you know, anything pretty much new or that might be a, a special segment uh, example. I worked on the J.J. Abrams series. Um, I've worked on shows like Expedition X, um, you know, diff- different shows like like that. So through my job, I met uh, a gentleman named Ben Hansen, who I'm sure you guys have probably heard of. And Caroline Corey, who is the director and producer of the movie, had contacted Ben Hansen and said to him, Hey, I'm thinking about doing a new uh, UFO movie. What do you think I should do it on or what would you suggest? And uh, Ben pointed her in my direction and the rest is history that's pretty much how how it happened when i did join david david mason was was already a, a member as well and um just just a side note i'm I'm no longer with with uapx i'm kind of doing my own thing but uh you know those guys are still plugging away
20: so uh uh, uh dave mason i mean the uh uh in the film, I mean, you have you bring in an impressive amount of equipment. I mean, did uh, did the producers come to you and say, you know, we want to do, you know, such and such? What would you recommend that we use?
3: Um, yeah, they were surprised. So the producers uh, weren't expecting uh, that I had all this gear. And so this, to, to put it into perspective, everything you see on the rooftops, uh, on the mansion or in the rooftops of, of Catalina Island was my equipment. Uh, so I, I brought the eight FLIR thermal cameras, all the inventions, all the night vision, all the big binoculars, the handheld binoculars. There was one exception. There was a, um, camera system called the ufo dap on a tripod and this was the camera that was mounted on the rooftop at a spot where it has a dome and an antenna projecting that was purchased by carolyn cory and that's owned by carolyn cory
2: just a side uh, but, note on just a side note on that real quick before i forget uh i'd like to thank christopher o'brien for uh taking care of us when we uh, looked into that ufo dap without him wouldn't have had it
1: by that the way, Christopher good. O'Brien, as you probably know, was a former co-host of the show. That's
2: exactly why I had to mention it. Okay, cool. okay well, I, 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 We're always happy we're to hear about, about Chris. <laughs> yeah
3: Anyway, uh, you know uh, we had to submit our information and and then when um, I was going to ship some equipment down to uh, the filming site, I made up a list of all the equipment I was going to be bringing. And it it took me a full day just to do inventory and, uh, and send that over to Carolyn. And she realized that, you know, we had a tremendous amount of equipment. She was very excited and said that we're going to go with red, uh, red cameras, high resolution cameras. And she really stepped up the game on what we were going to do because she didn't realize what I was going to be bringing to the table. And, uh, there was a, um, a large uh, cargo van was, uh, was rented and, uh, it was driven down about 1300 miles, all of my equipment from my, my business location, from my loading dock to, to the uh, site. And, uh, yeah, so it was, it was quite an undertaking. Uh, I was nervous because I thought, what if stuff gets broken or stolen, but everything arrived undamaged and everything from my clear cameras to the other equipment, everything worked. And, My invention survived uh, the ordeal.
1: By the way, for those who haven't heard of red cameras, they are professional digital cameras. They are uber expensive.
3: Oh, they are. (laughs) They're they're very expensive and very high performance.
1: So very likely some of the movies you've seen are (laughs) filmed with red cameras.
3: Oh, yes. Yeah. And usually that's like your, your very expensive productions. They go with the red cameras because there really isn't anything above that.
1: These are the ones that do 8K. They're capable of 8K.
3: You, you got it.
1: Now, I'm going to ask you in our next segment, if I was writing the listing for A Tear in the Sky for TV Guide, and I want to have like a couple of pithy paragraphs... Not to spit on the mic here. A couple of pithy paragraphs on the film in our next segment. Maybe tell us what would be in that description so we have a better understanding of what we're going to expect. We have Dave Altman. who's one of the people connected with the film. Dave Mason, our special guest co-host, the one, the only Tim Swartz who is ever-present and always around. By the way, the team of guests will be returning in after the Paracast for Powercast Plus listeners. It means you're in
10: the Paracast.
11: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
1: Hey, listeners. the Paracast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus.
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: So, Dave Mason, David Altman, which of you want to tackle the task of producing the TV guy description for A Tear in the Sky?
3: I think Altman should do that.
2: <laughs> okay. I would say... What do you want, like a plot summary? Is that what you're looking for? I want
1: to know whether to watch this film. I have access to a one-paragraph or two-paragraph description. What would you put in it?
2: I would say this is a fantastic movie about a team of military personnel, scientists, and different special guests who would uh, try to recapture in real time the uh, Tic Tac that was captured by the U.S. Navy, Uh, the Tic Tac UFO and other anomalies, and they use state-of-the-art military-grade equipment and technology. Special guest appearances by William Shatner, Michio Kaku, Travis Taylor, John Alexander.
1: Okay, William Shatner, tell me more about what we can expect from his appearance.
2: So, you know, I actually occasionally work on on his show, uh, The Unexplained, it's pretty well known that he's fascinated by by the subject, and I mean, you know how couldn't he be? his in, his entire life just about is is based on space, let alone he's actually almost been there. So you know, Ka- Caroline sits down with him and kind of runs the evidence by him and wants to get his reaction and his opinion on, on stuff. and apparently from 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 what he was shown and what he learned, he was pretty blown away.
1: Now, Shatner once told a story about taking a motorcycle in the desert and seeing a UFO. But then 10, 15 years later, he said, ah, he just made that up.
2: I've got a better one for you. I don't know if you know this, but DeForest Kelly, who played Bones, was a witness to the Battle of L.A. in 1942. Wow, Do you that's say, exciting. Yep. True story.
20: I don't think I've heard that one before. Yep. That's
2: the yep. first time I've heard I, it. I'm a big fan of all the old stuff, all the old shows like, you know, long John Nebel and starting there all the way up until now. I'm I'm a big fan of anything in the early nineties I can get on, on art bell, you know, stuff like that. And there was a show called, I believe it was the aberration. And, uh, actually, I think Bill Moore even had a, had a, a show on, on this, on this channel. And, It was in the early 90s, maybe late 80s. Uh, DeForest Kelly actually did an interview and he talked about it. And you can find it on YouTube.
1: He was a good storyteller. Very good interview. That's interesting. Now, I should tell our listeners they know I'm as old as the hills or beyond the hills. And I actually a couple of times met Long John Nebel. Wow. People I know were on his show, including my late brother. But... I didn't like him. Personally, this guy was, well, we don't want to use the words. This is commercial radio, family-friendly radio. But he was a pioneer. He pioneered this long-form talk show format. He pioneered paranormal talk radio. He had people like Jackie Gleason on his show. All the people you recognize from the 50s and 60s in the UFO field. George Adamski, Howard Menger, Donald Kehoe. Long John had them on.
2: Gray Barker, Jim Mosley. Timothy oh, yeah. Greenbacker.
1: That's right. Yep. I was never on the Long John show. No, I called a couple of times on the phone.
2: My favorites are the ones where they talk about Ray Shaver and the and the Dero and the one where Kehoe comes on after the uh, debacle that happened when he was shut down, when Kenneth Arnold was supposed to be on on the Mike Wallace show with him. That's a good one.
1: Okay, that's Richard Shaver, by the way. Okay, if Richard Shaver and Ray Palmer were both on Long John show. And I remember that Kehoe was doing, I don't know if this is the one you talked about, where he goes on a CBS documentary. And I think it's live. It's not like mm-hmm. now you have the videotape and you have the five-second delay so they can delete something. And supposedly, he said this in one of his books, supposedly they censored every important point He wanted to make about UFOs. He got so frustrated that once he was on the show, he deviated from the script and they cut him off. And of course, CBS explanation is he deviated from the script that he agreed to and therefore he had no alternative. He said, no, I'm being censored. Well, you know, if if you were expected to follow a script, you agreed to be on the show. My opinion is follow the script.
2: Yeah, and uh, Kenneth Arnold was originally supposed to be on that same uh, show, and at the last minute they flew him in, and he refused to go on, and he stayed in his hotel room and never did the show.
20: They expected him to stay, to stick to a script too, probably.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And uh, they, yeah, I think that's exactly why he didn't do it. They probably wanted him to say that it was probably a weather balloon. That was kind of the. A-
3: the fallback explanation for everything that that zipped around in the sky.
1: Sure, a weather balloon that could fly at twelve hundred miles an hour. Yeah, and he actually nine,
3: nine,
2: nine, uh, of, nine of them. Nine of them.
3: Yeah, right. he said they were they were crescent shaped uh, in the but they got the names because he said skipping on water. They appeared to be skipping, so it was called like the saucer skipping on water, and hence the name uh, being coined. But uh, he actually claimed uh, less than, the, he thought it was faster, but he thought no one will believe him if he says at this speed. So he, his actual official statement of speed was less than what he actually believed him to be. And uh, I find it fascinating that people who are not pilots, who have not had that kind of experience or training, are often the arm chart, armchair experts on, on this and that they know more than pilots. And so they'll, they'll give these prosaic explanations. And I, I think that's what we all need to do is just become armchair experts and not really be experts in our field. That way, we'll know more than the people who actually work in those fields. Hmm.
2: We kind of denigrate experts. <laughs> there are no experts in this field.
1: <laughs> I'm just thinking of experts in general.
20: <laughs> I can't remember which which debunker it was, but there was somebody on uh, national television basically said that that pilots, you know, you couldn't trust, you know, pilots' observations of UFOs because they're not good observers.
9: <laughs>
2: it was probably it was either Menzel or Class. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, I, I would like
3: to ask those people. Okay, so if you don't trust their observational skills, then please don't fly on any of the commercial aircraft or. or because they're not as
20: skilled as you are.
2: Okay. Take a train. Yeah, yeah I mean, this is this was
20: somebody more recent. When I say okay. recent, <laughs> probably probably like the nineteen nineties, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. What's their definition
3: of 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 a more trained observer? I mean, this is you know, I'd like to know who that person is. I mean, often we have NASA uh, astronauts testifying on on what they've observed. Are they uh, are they better observers than their NASA astronauts? I, I mean, trying to figure that one out.
1: Also, astronauts, a large number of them have a lot of flight experience. Mm-hmm. That's where we got our mm-hmm. first pool of astronauts. They're flying. Let's get someone who's skilled at flying a normal plane.
3: Right. Right. It takes that level of of competence to go from that level to becoming an astronaut and to get to that astronaut level and to be picked. You, you have to have superhuman skills. I mean, there's just no question.
1: Well, then we can always hire George Takai. I mean, he was <laughs> the helmsman for the Enterprise, right? Yeah.
20: <laughs> Going back to, uh, to the movie, uh, A-, A Terror in the Sky... Uh, now I I I know you know the the way that these types of, of films are you know conceived and, and shot. How closely did the finished product end up being like it was originally conceived? Because you know I mean I know you, you know you, the producers come up you know well let's let's do a movie about such and such, but then uh, you know let's let's you know let's do a movie about uh, UFOs. But it also depends on the type of wild footage you end up getting during the production. So how closely did the finished product match what was originally conceived?
1: We're going to have the answer to that question from Dave Mason and David Altman. On the other side with Gene and Tim, you're in... The Pericast. Pericast.
4: Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com.
15: GCN's policy is open forum avoiding censorship. Defense costs for words spoken outside of our control supersede the ability to deliver voices to this important talk platform. The First Amendment is the foundation of our core values. Castle culture is silencing voices regardless of perspective. Freedom to speak is in the balance. Support the legitimacy of speech itself. Consider donating to SaveGCN.com. Let's saveGCN.com. Jake was in big
21: trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? 92 Take Jake's advice. Give federal tax management a phone call. If they help me, they can help anybody. Call the federal tax management hotline now. 800-503-8625. 800-503-8625. 800-503-8625.
15: We all have heard about the benefits of fish oils, but what about the presence of heavy metals, PCBs, dioxins? ferons, and other contaminants found in fatty tissues of fish. GCNteam.com recognizes this risk and offers IFOS certified tested omega-3 fatty acids. EPA, DHA insist on IFOS omega-3 fatty acid certification. Get the best at GCNteam.com or call 877-878-4203.
0: we'd like to hear from you if you have a comment or question about the paracast send it to news at theparacast.com that's news at theparacast.com and don't forget to visit our famous paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com
1: okay guys either of you can have the answer dave mason david altman how close did the finished product adhere to the original concept?
2: You want me to take this one, Dave? Yeah, you go ahead and take that, and then I'll, I'll I'll follow up. So, just to begin, you know, like like Dave was was talking about earlier with Caroline uh, taking us on and taking this project on. I mean, it was a huge gamble for her. You know, we we had never worked together on an expedition doing research out in the field before. You know, for all she she could have uh, expected us to to get to go out there and and not liked each other, you know, like somebody might've got on somebody's nerve and the gear wouldn't work. And, you know, who knows what kind of people these guys really are. So, you know, kudos to her for taking that chance. Cause I mean, obviously it paid off as far as chronological order and, and real time, you know, we were only out there for five days. It pretty much happened the way that you see it. I mean, it, it's, it's unbelievable how you can get that much footage you know, you know, I, I felt like we were out there for a lot longer than than it seemed. But the the way that everything happened, it happened pretty much the way that you see it. I mean, the the the, the big capture happened. You know, the the big triangulation happened. I mean, probably within what an hour, two hours, Dave. Uh,
3: yeah. I mean, it it happened uh, rather uh, quickly, and I I was confident we were going to record some anomalous objects just by the array of cameras that we had and eyes on the sky in night vision devices. So I I fully expected we were going to be able to um, acquire something. And we knew that if we didn't have data, so if we went out there and spun our wheels and we had overcast and rain and la de da that what was going to wind up happening was at least we'd be able to document the process of of using the equipment and and sharing the experience so there was still uh, potentially a movie it just wouldn't have been as good had we not uh, recorded anything so I, I but i was confident i mean i i knew from my experience in running my equipment from my location that going to this hot spot uh, area that we were going to acquire data
2: and also not a lot of people know. I mean, people are, are learning now because we've been doing a couple of interviews, but for the first two or three nights that I was on Catalina Island, I wasn't able to record anything because of a mix up. I was out there with night vision and I was seeing things and, and kind of freaking out because I couldn't show anybody what I was seeing. And then we, we figured out that we could record uh, the night vision through our iPhones. And, I mean, that's pretty much what what saved our part of the movie, because without that, you just would have had us pointing and yelling at objects and not being to show anybody what we were looking at. We got lucky on that.
1: We should point out here that the iPhone is perfectly capable of producing 4K footage for a movie.
2: Yeah, they're making full-length features on iPhones now. Yeah, but they'll never replace the red cameras. (laughs) No, of course not. (laughs) You,
1: You think with a red camera... The money you spend, you could buy what a thousand iPhones? No, a hundred iPhones.
3: <laughs> but you could see subtle differences, depth of field, color, uh, chromatic correction. I mean, that's why they still make those cameras because the professionals are seeing that you know they can do the comparisons and find out you know the big differences. Just as I see in thermal camera or FLIR technology, you can buy the consumer grade FLIR cameras that will give you what will be more imp- Somewhat impressive stills, but when it comes to video feed uh they don't have the capability of properly sampling the microbolometer to give stable and clear motion images, so you get smeared images where if you spend some real money on a thermal camera, you'll get more crisp and and clear images of of objects in motion I'm sure that's that's true in uh studio work that the the larger fifty thousand hundred thousand dollar cameras offer much greater capability in depth of field exposure rates frame rates and just overall clarity
20: why did you choose the areas that you did catalina island and 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 around there Uh, dave mason you referred to it as as a hot spot i mean is that i mean i know that the the military you know recorded a numerous uh, uap activity is that the reason
3: why that's one of the reasons, uh, as Kevin Day had identified on his 5-1 radar system that these objects were, they, they hovered over um, the area between Catalina Island and Laguna Beach, like over the ocean, and then they they ascended down south of Catalina Island. And you have that report, and then there are numerous uh, you know, residential reports between Catalina Island and Laguna Beach uh, and much of that information to be found, uh, like with uh, Preston Dennett's work, where he reports, you know, that kind of phenomenon. And given the the volume of reports, uh, there's even a uh, video, I think, from the 1960s of an object that was going over Catalina Island, a a cylindrical object that just went uh, right over it. And this was filmed on, I think, eight millimeter film. It it suggests that there is some higher level of activity that we figured that would be a good place to start with and, and try to confirm whether or not uh, there's activity within the region.
2: Also, um, you know, I, I did a lot of research on the area uh, in the year, even before we knew we were doing a movie, we originally weren't even thinking movie. We just wanted to go and do this expedition. So I had begun begun doing uh, some background on the area I was able to befriend the editor of the Catalina Island newspaper. His name's uh, Jim Watson. Um, he was kind enough to send me a book that he he had written. Uh, that's, how, that's how anomalous this area is, that this guy was able to write an entire book on different accounts. And, and one of the things he also sent me was a front page newspaper article from the Catalina Island newspaper from July 7th, 1947. He sent me that along with the handwritten account of two Army veterans who photographed and spotted three flying discs on the beach. Now, we were just talking about Kenneth Arnold and this sighting kind of goes along with that whole week, you know, starting, you know, even earlier with Maury Island to Kenneth Arnold to the whole week up until Roswell. I've got about seven or eight different front-page newspaper clippings of different states on the cover, people spotting discs. And it ended at Roswell, which made me think that whatever Kenneth Arnold saw, whatever these pilots saw, and whatever crashed in Roswell had to be the same thing. I mean, what are the odds of all these sightings happening on the West Coast and it being something different?
1: But when you get to Maury Island, I think there's a general perception— Right, Then it's a hoax.
2: I know, I know, but still.
1: And of course, Roswell. There's lots of information there that's contradictory. Although even those who are skeptical agreed something happened. And the question
2: is, right. what is that? What
1: is that something?
2: Right. I mean, maybe they might have seen the same newspaper clippings i saw (laughs) and said hey this is what we can use to cover up this special you know project that we have going there's all these you know flying disc reports let's just say that our special you know black project was one of those i mean who knows what happened we
1: know what's going to happen here with dave and david and gene and tim you're in the pericast (laughs) pericast
11: you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
6: G'day, I'm Jamel that works with Dr. Joel Wallach and the GCN team with Longevity at teamg'day.com. By becoming an associate, you provide income for you and your family on your own hours while working from home.
10: USA Radio News with
20: Kenneth Burns.
13: No more gas from Russia to Finland. The Kremlin has cut off the Nordic country. The move comes after Helsinki refused to pay Russian energy giant Gazprom in rubles and after Finland announced it wanted to join NATO. The break is easier for Finland compared to other European nations. Russian imports of natural gas accounts for some 5% of Finland's total energy consumption. North Korea says it found nearly 220,000 more people with feverish symptoms, even as leader Kim Jong-un claimed progress in slowing a largely undiagnosed spread of COVID-19. He hinted at easing virus restrictions to help an economy on the decay. Experts say Pyongyang is certainly downplaying the true scale of how the virus has spread among the unvaccinated populace. Once again, the major indexes on Wall Street lost, this time for the sixth straight week. This is USA Radio News. The youngest of 10 black people killed at a Buffalo supermarket in a racist attack late to rest this weekend. 32-year-old Roberta Drury was at the Topps friendly market to buy groceries at the time of the shooting. The Syracuse-area native moved to western New York a decade ago to take care of her brother as he fought leukemia. Drury is known by friends and family as Robbie. She's being remembered as big-hearted and quick with a laugh. A tornado that touched down in northern Michigan killed at least two people and injured more than 40. The twister hit the town of Gaylord Friday. Video posted online showed extensive damage along the city's main street. One building appeared to be largely collapsed. Utility poles and debris are found along the side of the road. A shelter has been set up at a church. The last time Gaylord had a severe windstorm was more than two decades ago. A state of emergency has been declared for Otsego County. Former President Trump has paid the $110,000 in fines for being held in contempt by a New York state court. You're listening to USA Radio News.
21: Take Jake's advice. Give Federal Tax Management a phone call. If they help me, they can help anybody. Call the Federal Tax Management hotline now. 800-503-8625. 800-503-8625.
0: 800-503-8625. This is Micah Hanks of the Grayling Report, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of Paranormal Radio.
1: Let's pursue that very briefly. So those early cases, how many of them could have been the result of some kind of test?
2: Well, I mean, obviously, it's all speculation. We could speculate all day. Uh, You know, the the thing is that. Besides all the others, Catalina sticks out because there are reports going on even further back. The Battle of Los Angeles, 1942, whatever that object was that was seen and 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 shot at. When it left, it went south and headed out towards Catalina Island and went out to the ocean. So there's something even before then. There's reports of people seeing green uh, door-like objects hovering above the island that looked like it was opening and closing. I was able to speak to a lot of fishermen captains who had some crazy experiences out on the water. One of them happened at about 3, 4 in the morning. Only people awake on this fishing boat were, were the captain. And uh, I believe it was a guy just kind of hanging out in the galley. And all of a sudden, the entire cabin lit up as bright as day for about five seconds. And the guy in the galley says to the captain, hey, you know, what was that? And the captain said, oh, it's nothing to worry about. It happens all the time.
20: Hmm. Happens all the time.
2: Yeah regular basis, they see strange things out there. Unfortunately, they have the same stigma as pilots. They don't like to talk about it. They keep it to themselves. I spoke to whaling captains. I befriended a guy uh, named Patrick who owns a company called Horizon Boats. He's actually also a, a producer for Shark Week, and his business that he runs, he rents out the shark cages to divers that want to swim with the great whites out at Guadalupe. And he himself had told me about sightings. He was actually working on trying to get me some video from some eyewitnesses. And so far, I got nothing.
20: That happens a lot. Videos promise, but rarely shows up. Yep. unfortunate. Yeah, and when it does show up, it's it's nothing usually like what's been described.
2: Yeah, they see objects coming in and out of the water all the time. And, you know, then you have to look back and, and see what was going on, you know, during the Cold War. With all the USO reports coming from Russia and the submarines, the, the, the croakers, they call them. They call them croakers because when they were listening to them underwater, they sound like frogs that were croaking. They saw so many objects and were chased and tried chasing so many that they just gave up on it eventually and just said there's nothing we can do about it. Just like the skies.
1: Well, I, th- I think when it comes to UFOs, it doesn't seem to me as if they're equipped to investigate anything that extends too far beyond the normal,
3: that I agree with. Yeah, we are our technology is limited, particularly underwater. We're using sonar for depth searches, and we can't use cameras unless we drop cameras down uh, because of the attenuation factor of the water. And if you're using sonar and you're trying to say investigate some phenomenon, you're you're telegraphing by sending out a sonic pulse. You're, you're telling whatever's down there, we're we're coming to look for you, so if they could quickly disperse if if there was a, a craft or or vehicle underwater.
1: But wouldn't that largely depend on whether the source responsible for that underwater thing even cares?
3: That they may care. Who knows? I mean, perhaps they make appearances just to give the suggestion that they are there. But certainly, they could see anything approaching, and or respond by disappearing. And especially if you're telegraphing with sonar pulses, I mean, that's just a big beacon saying, you know, you're shouting out to whatever's down there that you're you're approaching. So you could quickly scatter your your technology from being detected.
20: Okay, now that's that's a good point that you make about whether or not. They care if they're seen or whether or not they're, they're actually, uh, demonstrating that they're there because some of the interviews that you had with these, uh, uh Navy pilots, you know, there uh, the, 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 one case where they said it's just like a dozen of them just seemed to drop out of the sky in front of them. You know, uh, clearly whatever this phenomenon is, it can, it can choose not to be seen.
2: But these things, right. Obviously, they want to be seen, which is why they have lights.
20: (laughs) Right, right, exactly. That's, you know, that's, uh, you know, I was going to ask that earlier in the program is, uh, you know, these things can, you know, obviously appear and disappear at will. Yet at night, they might as well just hang a big glowing sign on themselves that says UFO. Uh. Right. And
3: one of the things I've noticed over, you know, the historic documents and you look at, you know, photographs and stills that have been taken from the 1950s on. Uh, what we have from those timelines were more spectacular, closer encounter type photographs. And many of them are, that were just irrefutable. And today what happens is I, I I think it has to do with the resolution of cameras. So if you have a higher resolution camera, whatever you're going to photograph is going to be at at a greater distance. And if you have a cheap Polaroid camera, you might capture something that, that's, that's closer in. It's as if information is being shared with us on a limited basis. And then if you do have a, a spectacular camera ready to photograph something, that camera will shut down and not be able to photograph. The battery will die or, or the file will get corrupted. And that seems to be the norm. I, I had an experience with a thermal camera. I uh, was using it during daylight. I uh, was setting things up. I was also going to be doing astrophotography. And I watched in the monitor, and I saw something zigzag. I got the video. It zigzagged, and the camera malfunctioned. And it had a built-in um, uh, what they call a sterling cooler, which is a compressed helium cooler that freezes the sensor on the camera so that it can range cold temperatures. And that cooler pump, which just kind of makes a 60-cycle buzz, dropped down an octave to about 30 cycles. It just dropped down, and then the camera malfunctioned. And I think it created a magnetic um, disturbance on the camera, but it was some sort of a close proximity object that approached the camera. And I I certainly didn't see anything or hear anything, only the video is what was was revealing to it. And with so many reports of pilots saying they're they're flying their craft, they're pursuing, and then their cockpit lights shut off, or their instrumentation shuts off, or if they try to engage them with combat, their instruments shut down. there's There's something going on where they can interact within at an electron level and actually affect specific components and have them redirect or or malfunction on a very on a small electron level, much like what happened at the uh, the nuclear silos where each one of them were shut down one by one and And then, demonstrating the skills of, of we can shut down specific instruments at a specific times,
1: that would be Malmstrom right correct
2: another, another now, uh, thing that was mentioned during the hearings exactly yeah.
1: of course think, they, portrayed, that, they portrayed they portrayed ignorance the, of that, but you would think here, like with anything else, they tried desperately to ignore anything that occurred before tic-tac
3: exactly Mm -hmm. yeah it seems like that the agenda was to give a a minimalist approach on it and only focus on things that that had an explanation and just by omission not tell the entire story of course
1: they did have a classified briefing after but it's not necessarily anything that would have been more illuminating
3: right and i I think unfortunately we're not going to get what we want to see because of what could potentially be a a retaliation if uh if there's an admission that uh, we we gave this cover story and what really happened was this we're going to wind up um, being very disappointed and untrusting
1: now there was something there which is kind of screwy about possible penalties for people who report false sightings.
3: Interesting. Well, I mean, that that could be, if it, say for example, I could see there would be validity to that. So let's say you claim that there's a, an object near an Air Force base and you give it some big threatening description and then they mobilize all of their aircraft into the sky over some kind of a hoax. I would think that there would be Uh, there would probably be a necessity for that i mean it's it's like filing a false uh false police report
1: we've got more to come with dave david gene and tim you're in the
22: pericast
11: you are listening to gcn visit gcn com today
1: Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com. Namecheap.com.
23: Let them do what they do best. Deal and negotiate with the IRS so you pay the lowest you can in back taxes that the law allows. We are a 100% U.S.-based company, and we've saved our clients millions over the years in back taxes. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, call my friends right now at The Tax Doctor
24: and learn more. 800-507-3137. 800-507-3137. 800-507-3137. That's
6: 800-507-3137. Extendivite really works. Here's just a few testimonials from Amazon. Patricia, excellent herbal formula. I use Extendivite to keep my cardiovascular system fine-tuned. Brian, I'm using Extendivite, and for me, it has made a world of difference. God made all these nutrients in the ground. Enough said. Cami, five stars. I feel a lot of energy since I started taking Extendivite. TR, five stars. All I can say is... Extendivite works. Buy it, try it, and see for yourself. To get your Extendivite today, go to Extendivite.com. That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Or call us at 1-877-928-8822. Extend your life with Extendivite.
22: The complete website is com, or call us at 818-984-6100 Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-984-6100, com. This is Jacques
15: Vallée. You're listening to the podcast
1: the gold standard of paranormal radio. So, yes, the suggestion that if you cause the military to scramble as a result of a false report of a UFO, it'd be like reporting a false crime to the police department.
2: I I would hope it would take more than a phone call to send out the Air Force or anybody (laughs) They'd have to identify that there was an actual threat.
1: Yeah, it can't just be some wacko calling on the phone that, <laughs> that would cause them to get everything
2: there'd in be a jet, flat condition. There'd be condition. jets in the sky t- 24-7, we'd see jets.
3: <laughs> I know that at times they get bird flocks that have triggered their radar, you know, where they they encounter that. But who knows whether or not they appear to be bird flocks and maybe they're not.
2: Just think of the drones, man. Right. I don't think, though,
1: that fake reports are that numerous, maybe on YouTube, because there are a lot of people who produce or try to produce UFO photos, but don't have the skills. And you think here, you know, software is cheap. Professional video editing software is cheap. Certainly someone who took the time to study for a few minutes would be able to come up with something credible.
3: I've seen a few. I'm going to debunk a couple. Uh, there was one with the moon, and these objects appear to come around the edge of the moon, and then it casts these shadows. Uh, there were a couple things wrong in physics. The shadows were casted at, at a, a wrong angle with respect to the solar luminance of the moon. So that was fa- flaw number one. Flaw number two was as they were coming around the circumference of the moon, they doubled or tripled in size. Well, the moon's circumference is, is, I think it's what, about 7,000 miles uh, diameter. So we'd only have a proximity of maybe uh, 2,000 miles approaching toward the Earth. And since it's nominally 240,000 miles distance, you would have a an apparent size change that would not be visible uh, by, by coming around the edge. So I, I knew that whoever created this video, it, it was impressive, but they didn't really study their laws of physics to do it properly. Uh, A second one that went viral, it was also a daytime shot of the moon. It was a crescent moon, and there was this mysterious uh, object that looked like the letter C that was sort of cloud-shaped. And I'm looking at this video. I said, well, that's intriguing. It looked real. Of course, the moon was about a half phase, and then the camera pans back, and there's power poles and trees. And I'm looking at the – and I'm saying, wow, there's a major flaw here. The shadows casted by the sun on the power poles indicated that the sun was at a five o'clock position, but the moon phase indicated that the sun was illuminating from an 11 o'clock position. It didn't make any sense. And clearly to me, it was a, it was a host video because it was impossible to have the sun illuminating from that angle, but casting shadows from a totally different angle. And this was one where somebody did great work, but, They didn't understand the basics of astronomy and, and, you know, where the sun is in relation to the moon and the earth.
20: I see so many of these CGI UFO videos, you know, especially on on YouTube. And, you know, you, you almost instantly know that it's it's a hoax, or it's a fake video, especially the ones where, I mean, you know, it starts out, you, know, you see the disc, it looks good, but then it suddenly, like, uh, shoots away with a flash of light. You know, uh, right. it's a, that it's flash of light, and it's like, oh, come on.
3: <laughs> yeah, and then what I always like is, because, and it's over a mile away, and the instant the flash, there's an explosion. Uh-huh, and they yeah. don't understand that the, the speed of sound, you're going to have about a five-second delay if there's a sound made from a mile away. It'll be a, a, have approximately a five second delay, and so they forget that aspect of it. I, I knew this was coming when COVID broke out. I'm going, okay, watch out. People are sitting behind computers, nothing to do but make fake UFO videos so they can play hoaxes and make money on YouTube. That's really what it comes down to, and it's sad because what happens if you have somebody who's new to the phenomenon and and you ask them, hey, if you want to learn about UFOs, go on the internet.
20: Hmm.
3: Well, if, if you were to tell somebody that you're going to have 99% of them come back and say, hey, this is crap. I You know, I don't believe anything. If you're shown, the, if you go to the wrong sources, you're just going to shake your head and say, you know, this is just some sort of a fad. It's not real. And, and I can understand where some debunkers have developed their opinion because oftentimes first impressions are the ones that are the longest lasting. So once you've made your mind up on something, It's very difficult to shift you. It's much like, you know, political parties. You know, if you're Democrat or Republican, it's very rare for somebody to deviate from one party to the other.
2: Not only that, but there's so many new people, uh, you know, learning about this subject that I see going around videos being posted claiming to be real that were debunked by people 10, 15 years ago, and they're being regurgitated again as real. Sure.
3: And they may not care. They may just want to put up content, that's all. Uh, And they don't care whether it propagates negative feedback or or it hurts their name. A lot of people, uh, they will ride the um, negative press is better than no press.
1: Now, some years back, I will mention the names. We featured someone who ran a YouTube channel with UFO videos and we pointed out to them, hey, you know, most of these are fake. And they said, "Well, that's up to the viewer to decide." Which meant, of course, the more views, the better. It doesn't matter whether they're factual mm. or not. Yep.
2: Right. Yep, I know. Yep. But we're not going to name those people. I think
1: the <laughs> I think the page has since been taken down. Let's and, you the know. Fact.
2: You also have to notice that a lot of channels that are like that have got hundreds of thousands of subscribers.
3: And, and that's the formula that seems to work, is if you try to run uh, an honest uh, game in this. It's just like being an honest researcher. The honest researchers aren't self-promoting. They're busy doing their research. And then you have others who will self-promote on the backs of those researchers and, and try to garner the attention. And this is what really complicates this, because there's real data. There's certainly, you know, credible stories with cred- credible provenance but it's in a clutter of, of false data, and this is what makes it very difficult because of all these, these fake narratives. I mean, I, I could make up a story and say, uh, "Gee, a, a spaceship landed, and this three-headed alien with six eyes uh, came out and talked to me, and it was purple, and, and then it took off.
1: And there, it was somebody, a one-arm you know, one-horn flying purple yeah, people:: Yeah, eater. People,
3: yeah it's not, it looked like that. So I say I made that
1: story up. And then I made a
3: picture of it on the internet, and somebody takes that picture and puts it on another website and then embellishes a story and says, well, this is a true story. And it comes from somebody else who says, well, gosh, if they say it's true, and that's a credible person, then I'm going to copy and paste it. This is how the bogus information gets copied and pasted and replicated. And then if it festers for a few years, then it gets indoctrined as factual. So that's how Serpo started.
13: <laughs>
3: a lot of a lot of these stories they just get propagated. So yeah, you're giving debunkers a uh, the field day on, on these false narratives and these false stories, and that's the unfortunate thing is that because I've seen people who are credible in this source who are, have been given false information and they're being duped by it, and and even if I add, you know say, I confront them on it, I say, look, you know this came from this source, it came from yeah. this. And then I find my myself having to it, I'm being attacked for even suggesting that uh, you know you've got to question the validity on these things and look at the provenance and and not go off all of the uh, uh, what you hear is anecdotal information. You know I, I hear people say, oh, you should know our military's got 20, 30 years of, of of advanced technology that's above civilian. And then I ask, well, where'd you hear that? Oh, somebody told me that. Hmm. Okay. Well, so somebody told you that. Who was that somebody? Oh, it, you know, it's a guy that I know. Well, sorry. He's, he's probably heard it from somebody else. This is just information that's being relayed. Is it true? It could be true, but understand that the information that, that you're you're trusting is, is just hearsay information.
1: Well, that's the entire problem with social networks today. You have everybody mm-hmm. thinking they can be bloggers or videographers it doesn't matter about the factual nature. And you get so many contradictory, crazy claims about any subject. It's not just UFOs or anything mm-hmm. else.
2: What it's do you like believe? It's like tel- the telephone game. Say what? It's like the telephone game almost.
1: You mean calling somebody who calls somebody?
2: Right. Oh yeah and then you end up yeah i remember it gets embellished and everything and by time you know you start off with a call to a friend hey i saw this and by time it gets to the fifth person it's hey i saw an eight-winged octopus flying carrying cupcakes you know like or, 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 this this is another problem and that's that, this is a good point because i've had
3: people I'll go to a, an event where i haven't seen friends for 20 years and they're talking about something i did and then they'll tell another friend and it, it's not only off; it's it's often grossly exaggerated.
1: Okay, we will continue with that, with David and Dave and Jean and Tim. You're in the
5: ParaCast.
11: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNLive.com today.
0: That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com.
24: Hey folks, Tom D for ParanormalDate.com. So sign up for free at ParanormalDate.com. That's ParanormalDate.com. Use the code word George and start meeting others. Get going now and connect with someone you like.
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Jane Steinberg.
1: Yes, in the retelling of a strange story, or any kind of story, it gets to be embellished. I wonder also, and you guys can tell me what you think, about oral histories, where somebody verbally talks of something, and it goes through generations year after year, and you wonder... Something's got to be lost in the translation. I don't care how professionally trained you are. I think also this test they do on TV. This was years ago on one of the all night talk shows, late night talk shows. I think Steve Allen did it at one time. I don't know how many of you people remember the late Steve Allen. Anyway, he was a pioneer. Oh, I know Steve. Yeah. In, yeah, he, he, he invented to the Tonight the... Show. Okay. he bring on, say, five people from the audience and he would whisper or have someone Mm -hmm. whisper a joke to the first person who in turn would whisper a joke to the second person but before they came out he would tell the original joke and then it would be quietly whispered and by the time the fifth person got it and said okay tell us what you heard it would have no resemblance whatever to the original and the problem being here is how can you get accurate information if the transmission method is so imperfect. It
3: it is imperfect. And then the the recollection on it, I think the subject is probably the only thing that could be trusted. Like if somebody witnesses a UFO and they had, you know, the memory of what happened and then they recall it 20 years or 40 years later, they're, they're often going to tell a different story, but maybe not embellishing, but just from what their recollection is. And, And this is a sad thing from if we were all, all of us in this uh, this broadcast and we were at a location and we're observing a phenomenon in the sky and then we were separated and asked to write down what did we see we're not all going to agree our testimony is not gonna, it's going to be similar but not in agreement so it probably wouldn't even be admissible in the court of law where your story my story dave's story you know everybody's going to be different
2: and to add on, and to add on that, I mean there's a lot of stories that you know people that witness the phenomenon. there could be five people looking up and only two of them see an object. the other three don't, and the right. two that see the object might have completely different descriptions of what they saw
3: exactly yeah i mean this, this is the this is one of the problems with this and and it it, it really is, it adds to the skepticism because when somebody tries to examine a particular witness and and their recollection. And because there's not a concise, provable, repeatable story, then that that it makes it all fall into question. But, you know, everything we experience in life, if somebody was to ask me a question about, well, what did I do yesterday? Well, I'm at the age where I have a difficult time remembering what I did yesterday. I can remember (laughs) things I did as a kid and stuff. But I could say, hey, I remember driving my car, driving to my office, I don't remember exactly getting in it. I just know I did that. And and then if I tried to describe it and then somebody was to ask me, okay, that day that you described, can you tell us what happened? I'm probably not going to remember anything of it. Um, And and so this is, unless the event really impresses on somebody and that they take the time to write down what did they experience, what did they witness if they do a, a voice recording of it. This is one of the things that Peter Davenport is always stressing when he does uh, you know, on, on documenting an event is that you need to write down what you saw if it was just an eyewitness event.
1: Well, this is also obviously a problem with Roswell, that mm-hmm. something happened and then we didn't have people start talking about it until over 30 years after the event to Stanton Friedman and William Moore, et cetera, and Kevin Randall right. and everybody else. And the question being here, what really happened? How has it been altered? And I know when Kevin Randall wrote this book, Roswell in the 21st Century, the big problem here is he went back and tried to look at the evidence all over again. And what he found is that a lot of the stories just didn't hold up. Not that something didn't happen, but it's going to be real difficult to figure out what it was unless somebody who really can follow it from A to Z, everything comes forth with written documentation.
3: Right. The, the follow-up may be that it, it, didn't, it didn't hold up because there was lying taking place, That didn't hold up because memories weren't serving. And that's probably really what was going on. You know, I'm a believer in the Roswell incident, just on the merits of, of Jesse Marcel, who was the Army's chief intelligence officer, showing up on the scene saw the crash debris, he knew it was not a weather balloon. And if it was a weather balloon, you would, in order to collect that that, uh, that balloon, you wouldn't send a, a massive troop to go and collect the debris. You would send maybe four people, you know, the person that drives the truck, the person who has the clipboard, the document, and maybe two guys to to pick up the debris and throw it in the truck. It's not a very massive object. And it's not something that a chief intelligence officer would fail to identify. Uh, he wouldn't have that title or role uh, if he hadn't been uh, um, an intelligent person. And, and what happened? Who knows? I mean, uh, of what kind of craft it was. Was it an experimental craft? Maybe. But we really didn't have much of a sophistication in aeronautics. If you look back at history in 1947, We did not have advanced aircraft. I'm sure there's anecdotal information out there on the internet, and I'm calling it that because it's anecdotal.
1: But it comes back to this what happened, and if it really was a crashed spaceship. I have two different areas. I have two different areas where I try to refer to it. Number one is, okay, we have this alien race sending craft here, and they obviously have more than one. And one of those crashes. So what do they do? They allow it to crash and let the primitives take their technology and do something with it? Or do they try to recover it? In which case, we have an even stranger story. Or will they bring their neuralizer and try to wipe out the memories from people who saw this thing? What would their approach be? I mean, if you come here... And you're visiting us. Why would you allow the locals to capture your technology? That's a logical problem. I mean, it's I, possible I that's the big mystery of Roswell—is that the craft was somewhere along the line recovered by them,
2: and they don't and have I, it. And I think. I think another uh, thing that you hear a lot when people, you know, say that exact same thing was they gifted it to us. They wanted us to have it. I don't buy that either.
1: No, if they don't want us to have it. That doesn't make sense. Number one is, say they come here and they are 500 years ahead of us. Or 400 years, Star Trek technology. How would we even know where to start in trying to reverse engineer it? It's not night vision goggles or printed circuit boards. I mean, take the iPhone, go back to the 15th century, the most prominent scientists and say, here, figure this out.
3: You would have the same problem sending that to a uh, hundred years back to Nikola Tesla. Um, sure, he wouldn't be able to figure that.
2: Well, uh, right. I mean, you know, somebody like Philip Corso obviously uh, figured it out. So there you go.
1: <laughs> right, Philip Corso figured it yeah, they- out. I don't know anybody who really believes Philip Corso. What happened with him? I mean, I but, do and- want to get William me- Burns back on the show. It's you need, you need to let, need to to let uh,
2: Dave Mason tell you uh, his opinion on the Philip Corso uh, story with night vision. So I'll let Dave explain. Yeah, that I, I,
3: don't, no, I just want to say I have not read the Philip Corso story, but I do know that he was um, advocating that night vision was taken from uh, alien technology.
1: Yes, alien technology, indeed. So many possibilities, so many questions when you bring up. That subject. And by the way, our special guests David Alpin and Dave Mason will be back for after the Powercast this week. That's available only if you are a subscriber to the Powercast Plus. To learn more about our premium feature and sign up within seconds, even sooner, check out the Powercast Plus. Once again, that's the Powercast Plus. We've got a lot more to talk about, especially the Philip Corso case with David. Dave, Gene and Tim, you're in PowerCast. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code.
10: Here's a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they'd be? Answer? They're probably among the millions of Americans who have prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with empty store shelves. Is yours? If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits at least one for each member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits now by going to mypatriotsupply.com. Your order will ship fast and arrive discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen... This is something you need to jump on now, before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to mypatriotsupply.com. Mypatriotsupply.com.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at Paracast.com. That's news at Paracast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: Okay, so the claim in the book, I read the book, by the way, the day after Roswell that he wrote with William Burns. And let's pick up on that, where he claimed that... The night vision goggles were based on alien technology, and you guys can tell us why that isn't so.
3: The night vision goggles that we even use today is largely based on the technology that was developed uh, about 1935 in Germany, and the Americans came on it. And this was called Gen Zero, where it just had a um, a photocathode would convert the uh, photons to electrons, and then they would hit a phosphor screen through a high-voltage accelerator. And and this was not really true ampl- light amplification. It was more of an infrared detector, and it required infrared light source to illuminate objects so that you could be able to see it on the phosphor screen. And then there was the development of Gen 1, which was a little better, at different photocathode material to enhance the sensitivity. But what really changed the game in night vision technology, this is image intensifier, Vacuum tube technology was the introduction of the microchannel plate, which has a capability of taking one electron that's been converted from a photon to make it into thousands of electrons, which then gets striked to a, a phosphor screen, like a P31 green phosphor or a P45 white phosphor screen. And what that enabled was the massive acceleration and increase of electrons so that you could massively uh, amplify light. And the first uh, introduction of that microchannel plate was in the Gen 2 in image intensifiers, and that came out, I believe, in the mid 70s. So, in essence, what we have today was based on what originated in 1935 with the only difference of different types of photocathode material, the introduction of the microchannel plate, and then the phosphor screen. That's really it. There really has not been any revolutionary developments in that technology. And so based on how simple it is, I really don't think that it was a device, since it's a vacuum tube, that if you try to compare that vacuum tube to today's CCD cameras, which today the solid state night vision devices are getting better and better, more sensitive, they're still not quite there in the sensitivity of Gen 2 or Gen 3, but they're approaching. And I own both of those technologies, so I can make that statement because I've done tests on it. In time, maybe 20 years from now, we're gonna have true CCD cameras that are just as sensitive as Gen 3, you know, or Gen 3 Plus, or, or even called Gen 4, uh, that technology. And not likely that something of very advanced technology would still be used in vacuum tubes.
1: The thing I worry about here, though, is why would someone like Philip Corso, who allegedly had a very stellar military record, make all this up? Because clearly, it wasn't true.
3: I don't think he was making it up. I don't think it was in the sense of self-promoting. I think this is the problem in the field where he heard it from somebody he believed in or somebody of credible uh, science who then probably heard it from somebody else. And this is where information, when it's shared by somebody you trust, you'll go with it. I mean, there's people I admire. If they tell me something, I believe them. It doesn't matter what they tell me. And I think he based it on information that was given to him but not done through direct information. And and this is the real problem. We're often working in a field that has so much disinformation, so much misinformation, information from self-promoters, and then we have that genuine information embedded within it. I wouldn't accuse him of, of fraud or or making things up. I, I would think that most likely it was false information given to him.
1: But why would he believe it? Because there's
3: people... I find in, that are not technical, you know, I'm, I'm a, from a technical uh, perspective and it is surprising that people that don't have the technical background will have a tendency to believe things um, because, you know, night vision, it just sounds like magic, you know, on the onset. If it's not explained to you, it just seems like, wow, you look through these things and you're, you're it's completely dark when you look and then you look through them and they're, everything's really bright. But if you look at the breakdown of how it actually works, it's, it's really not that complicated of a system. I, I think it's just on the, on, on the perspective of the person who believes it. I mean, we hear often in, in physics where somebody will make a misquote about something because they really haven't studied the physics. And if somebody has got other skill sets and it's not with physics or it's not in electronics or it's not in astronomy, when somebody gives them parameters about a device, they're basically going to be clueless about that device. And they'll just go with whatever somebody tells them about that device.
2: And maybe he heard it from somebody that
3: he trusted. That's what I think happened. I don't think, you know, somebody like that would want to just throw that out there and get themselves into, uh, you know, a suggestion that they they were trying to make something up for a book or a story.
2: Maybe they'll tell us at the next hearing. Yeah, I, I don't think
3: that's going to be the case. And it, it really does look like it. You know, the vacuum tube itself—it is a vacuum tube. It does have a vacuum and has a high voltage charge. And somebody figured out that if you have photons striking this particular material, uh, it would release electrons within that vacuum, and then using a high voltage static charge, you could pull those electrons and impact a phosphor screen. You know, like a um, just like glow in the dark phosphor and create an image from it. And they realize that if you do it properly, you can do image intensification. It's a very basic principle. It still works very well. It certainly has limits. I mean, you can't look at bright lights with it. You'll burn it out. Uh, There's a finite tube life. All the things that, you know, work against it. I I just don't believe that an ET would be using what would be considered uh, primitive technology.
1: Again, I say that if ET was here they're capable of doing what they are supposedly capable of doing, we would have no way to figure out their technology.
3: Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, it's just like you could take your laptop of today and send it to the 1970s, even the 1970s. We're just going back a very short period of time. People that would look at it and say, well, there's a microprocessor that's just in, it's, it's very small and it would be very hard for them to understand it. And if you took that laptop and then put it to the 1940s before the advent of the, the transistor, now you're, you're really going to confuse people. And then if you even tried to go back in time and say, Hey, this laptop does this and it connects to the internet. Well, what's the internet? You know, <laughs> oh, if you put these apps on, what are the apps? Well, it's got software. Well, what's software? Even if you went there with the book, it would be so much beyond their comprehension. So, if we end up receiving crash debris, good luck in trying to figure out what it is and study what element it is or what purpose it had. And often, we would probably make false conclusions if we saw protrusions. We would say, "Oh, this must have been a waveguide," or "This must—it may have had a totally different purpose."
1: Well, just go back to Star Trek. In the 1960s. And Star Trek Strange New Worlds kind of continues that more or less. Look at the tricorder. Look at all the inventions, the communicator from the mid-1960s when that show was first designed. Now look at science and what science has developed since then. And Star Trek is supposed to depict the 23rd century. Star Trek Next Generation, the 24th century. But think how much is on that ship that we can already do or we are in the process of developing, even warp drive. Captain Kirk's communicator. Yes, phones, of course. A... Hey, nice we've to... got more to come with David, <laughs> Dave, Gene, and Tim. You're in
15: The Yes. Oh,
11: Thank you for listening to GCN.
23: Call Advantage Gold at 800-900-8000. Call 800-900-8000.
10: USA Radio News with
14: Tim Berg. Cleanup and damage assessment continue this Sunday after a deadly tornado touched down in northern Michigan. State police saying two people were killed and more than 40 others injured after a twister tore through a mobile home park in Gaylord. Governor Gretchen Whitmer declaring a state of emergency for the area. Thousands of homes remain without power. The United States and South Korea plan to hold talks on restarting joint military drills in response to North Korea's nuclear program. President Biden and South Korea's president making the announcement at a news conference in Seoul. And as far as if the president would be open to meeting one-on-one with North Korea's Kim Jong-un.
4: With regard to whether I would meet with uh, the leader of North Korea, that would be dependent on whether he was sincere and whether he was serious.
14: This is USA Radio News. Ukrainians are pushing back as Russia makes slow incremental progress in parts of eastern Ukraine.
25: I'm not sure that it would be much of a helpful metric anyway, Lita, because uh, literally territory um, is changing hands every single day. So said
14: Pentagon spokesman John Kirby during a briefing on Friday. He was pressed on who controls what at this time and said the situation is changing every day. The Pentagon confirmed another weapons shipment to Ukraine this week, costing $100 million. Older Americans are being urged to get a COVID booster shot as more of them are ending up in the hospital. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky sharing that message this week. She described the increase in hospitalizations among older Americans as steep and substantial. She also noted just over 40% of folks 65 and older have gotten a shot over the last six months. This is USA Radio News.
15: This is me, the Merciless. You are listening
23: to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, exactly according to my plan.
1: Yes, think about the communicator. Hey, we had that developed, what, in the 1990s?
3: Right, and it was just rather, you know, a simple cell phone, and, you know, we we were gloating at the fact at that time that we had a device that was very comparable to what Captain Kirk had in Spock. Uh, and now how much that's developed See this iPhone where, you know, you can do video, you can, you can load all these apps, you can do so many amazing things from this very small device. And so many people uh, within the tech field failed to even see the potential of it. There was somebody, I won't mention names, uh, he was very well known in the software industry and said that the Apple iPhone was basically worthless because it didn't have a keyboard. So you get people who don't even have a vision about devices uh, that are pontificating their beliefs over something.
1: Well, I remember of course that the Motorola flip phone was the StarTech because they couldn't call it Star Trek because Paramount would sue
2: them. Right. Then you now you have uh Android which is droid from Star Wars. Of course. Of course, or Data was an android
1: in Star Trek Next Generation. (laughs) But the point being here is that we are currently looking into possible matter transmission. Mm -hmm. Of course, remember the fly where the fly gets into the transmission device and they don't have a filtering mechanism. So you get, therefore, someone with the head of a fly. That's the thing they missed out in that movie. No filtering mechanism. In fact, there was an episode of Star Trek Next Generation. This is fascinating. You may have seen it, where Captain Picard and crew are transported back to the Enterprise, but the filtering system fails and they come back as children. Oh,
3: interesting. I haven't seen that episode.
1: If you could filter the contents, you could basically send someone in the transporter, cure all their diseases and bring them back.
3: Right. If you could unify it so that all the code was just to be this certain thing, kind of like a antivirus on a computer, where you you could go in and, and cleanse somebody of all of the ailments uh, that may be um, you know, propagating within the body.
1: They can also repair defects. Okay. My heart's not that great right now. And I go for treatment. I don't need to do that. I just go into the transporter in the 24th century. You know, we can't even oh. predict what's going to happen a century from now. And sci-fi writers do their best to figure out the 23rd and 24th century. Their best guesses is right. as, as of the time they write the stories. But right now, we are so far beyond that level. Whatever you see in Star Trek I expect if we're still here in the twenty fourth century, we will have gone way beyond that. Not so much Star Trek discovery.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually uh, getting started on a new project. I really can't get into much of it, but it involves a cast member from Star Trek and Jesse Marcel the Third. We're working on something together.
20: Very cool. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs>
2: Oh, you'll have to keep us updated on that I'll I'll, I'll keep you in the loop when the the time is right. Is this for a major production company? I'll talk about it more when I can. (laughs) (laughs) I've
3: already said too much. He's he's using the vetting uh, vetting tactics, you know, just ask certain questions and then you'll get the answers, you know, between the lines.
21: (laughs) We
1: will endeavor to try to do that. Yes, indeed. But the point being here is I would think... This is one of my theories, that what we see as UFOs is a put-up job. You know, it's like an external holodeck. They're generating that because that's one or two steps beyond our technology. So we'd accept it. What they really are, we couldn't even begin to imagine.
2: Yeah, or it could be, you know, like Greg Bishop talks about a lot, the co-creation theory. You know, like we could be creating it ourselves. It could just be, I mean... (laughs) Another thing, you know, we could just speculate all day. We'll never know. Hopefully someday we will. But in my opinion, it could be anything.
3: Right. I, I don't think it's going to be the Hollywood you know, saucer lands with landing pods and exiting our small humanoid beings saying, you know, take us to your leader. Yeah, I think it, it, it will manifest in different forms of communication and in and, and forms that we're not expecting. And then even of those forms. It's up to us to uh, identify it. And I, I think part of that communication is the exposure of their craft where they'll, they'll make an appearance. People see it. Some people won't notice that it's anomalous, but those who do notice that it's anomalous will take notice and, and try to take action on it in some way, whether they try to get involved or try to communicate and information that I, I believe is limited for the purpose of not giving us too much information. Because face it, if we did have, a sudden encounter where these beings land and they're the candidates like the ones who want to uh, serve man, you know, from twilight zone. I know that if, if you had that type of encounter and they, they actually gift us the technologies that we, we look for, because we want to get off the fossil fuels and we want to do all these wonderful things, that kind of technology falling in the wrong hands with people who want to attack and, and take over countries with impunity, they would use that technology for that purpose. And it, it's very comparable to if you were to give or teach a, a chimpanzee how to use a machine gun to defend its its group uh, from predators. And, and you know what that chimpanzee would do. They would turn it on everybody and themselves. And, and we have to demonstrate a level of competence and intelligence before we will make contact. I think that's really what's
1: going to end up happening. One of our members of our team suggested something to me in email the other day. And this is something I'd like to bring up right now. And this might explain a lot of what's going on. That Earth is a penal colony. We're descended from a penal colony, and that's why we're so messed up. Uh, I've
2: heard, well, that, I've heard was, that one. Uh, they
3: might be even dumping uh, people. Uh, <laughs> I mean, or, or who knows? I mean,
2: we, maybe, maybe, the, be... maybe, the, maybe the guards are Bigfoot. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, we we could really go off on a lot of these different tangents, but you know, the, what it is is that there's there's just a preponderance of evidence, and 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 the problems that we have is we don't have enough evidence because we don't have enough to to sway the general opinions of people, and 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 that's and to sway science, uh, I mean, there's mainstream science, and that is, but yeah, again, main, mainstream science accepts. Um, Uh, The fact that you have dreams or I have dreams, I have the nocturnal dreams, but we can't prove scientifically that they exist. And and yet uh, it's accepted because of the preponderance of the evidence because the majority of the world population recalls these dreams. But think about it. If only 10% of the world population could recall their dreams, they would be labeled as crackpots and needing medications, uh, as being afflicted with some sort of a nocturnal, uh disorder a mental disorder and this is what's happening in the phenomenon is that we don't have the majority of the population observing paranormal or ufos it's it's a smaller segmented percentage of the population so because they're the minority they are excluded from science
1: we should not forget in terms of dreams that because he had dreams paul mccartney wrote yesterday and let mm-hmm. it be among other songs. Oh, yeah. Maybe he's yeah, mentally and, uh, defective and he should spend some of his billion and a half dollars to fix his problems.
3: Right. Well, this is what the, the problem is. And what, but if you actually look at the basis of science, you can't, prove, you can't prove to me you had a dream. I can't prove to you that I had a dream. If you tell me you have a dream, uh, I'll believe you because I've experienced them. And this is where, if if the world population was to witness, a, say, the UFO phenomenon, and somebody comes out and tells you, "Hey, I saw a UFO," you relate and say, "Well, yeah, I saw one, so I believe you." When I hear somebody telling me a story, I believe them because I've I have witnessed them with my own eyes and recorded them with thermal cameras, so I know it's a, it's a real phenomenon. I spent a lot of time outside uh, doing astrophotography and and then running thermal cameras, and I've seen enough convincing evidence from our military and from NASA and from our commercial pilots. Uh, there's there's a tremendous amount of real data, but it's just not. It's it's often
1: being suppressed. We've got so much more. One more segment of the main show, more of After the Powercast, our premium show with Dave, David, Gene, and Tim. You're in.
15: The Powercast.
11: Thank you for listening to GCN.
1: and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out the Paracast.plus to learn more about
19: Paracast+ are you ready to retire? Inflation is picking up, markets are volatile, and the dream of a comfortable retirement is harder to attain than ever before. The stock market goes up and down is beyond your control, but you're at a point in your life where you can't afford to make big financial mistakes. I'm Al Ibarroa, founder of Night Strategic Wealth. Our investment strategy allows you to go up with the stock market, lock in your gains, and when the stock market goes down, your investment won't lose a dime. This works for your investments, savings at a brokerage firm, or even money at a bank.
16: Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of AD After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, The Gold Standard of Paranormal Radio.
1: David Altman, Dave Mason, Gene Steinberg, Tim Swartz talking about you know, about the film that Dave and David worked on, A Tear in the Sky. And we've talked about the film earlier in this segment, but I'd like to bring that up just briefly. Why that title? What is torn?
2: It's kind of hard to believe, but this is true. Caroline Corey named our film, a tear in the sky before we even went out to film the movie. And it just so happened that a tear in the sky was very fitting. I don't want to give too much away, but uh, after you see the film, Think about that. Think about that. After you watch this film, the movie was named A Tear in the Sky before we even started production. We'll leave it at that.
1: And that's kind of rare in the movie business where you have a final title before you film it, unless like you're filming a book or something.
2: Yeah, she just liked the sound of it. And something came to her, maybe a little bit intuitive. And that's how it happened.
1: Okay, what can you tell us about the film? And you want obviously people to watch it. That would lead one to say that's a logical title.
2: Dave,
3: I don't know if we would want to disclose that because at the end there's a, you know it's kind of synonymous with the title. The title is, is a carryover from what Dave said. It was a the original concept, and it just happened to be that the data that we collected
2: actually fit that title. Oh boy. Now you have to see it at com. It's on Amazon right now.
1: Okay, so you rent it from Amazon or buy it or what? You
2: can buy it from Amazon and you can also rent it. It's also on iTunes, Apple TV, Vimeo, where most uh, video on demand are. You can also
3: buy the DVD directly from terrorinthesky.com, the the website. It, It sells the DVD direct.
1: I'm looking at it right now. A tear in the sky. You can buy it for twelve ninety nine at Amazon. Rent for three ninety nine, and it's gotten pretty decent reviews.
2: And if you're actually a Amazon Prime member, you can rent it for two ninety nine. Ha. Okay, I'll make a note of that. Yeah, we've we've been in the in the uh, top ten documentaries for on iTunes. Uh, we've been number four and, and number five. We were actually number three when we came out. We're still in the top ten. Movie's doing very well. It's been very well received. We're doing. We've won a bunch of awards. Doing some film festivals, and hopefully more, more to come.
1: Oh, we wish you the best. Of course, we also, of course, featured the phenomenon, the film from James Fox
2: and my, my good friend Lee Spiegel.
1: About. Right, right.
2: And we hope this works out. So, and also, let me just mention that I saw another great film recently. Everyone's looking forward to the Aerial Phenomenon. Watch that.
1: The Aerial Phenomenon. What can you tell us about that?
2: I can't talk too much about it because I was given the opportunity to uh, to do a, a pre screening. It is about the case of the school children in Zimbabwe. Heavily features uh, John Mack. Uh, you can actually catch some of the, the footage and some of the story in the phenomenon.
1: Well, I know the phenomenon had a pretty major part of that. Also, a lot of the footage was removed to keep the time down. If you look at the credits, it's kind of like Marvel film credits where every few seconds it stops, shows you 30 seconds of something, then shows you more credits.
2: I do believe there's a lot of bonus footage for that film. I haven't seen it, but I heard there's some bonus footage uh, if you buy it.
1: It is especially on Vimeo. I know that we offered a special deal for long-term subscribers to our Paracast Plus package. We had a small number of coupon codes for the Vimeo version of the phenomenon. And, of course, we used them up pretty quickly and couldn't get any more. We tried to get some more. But that was the version that had the extra footage. Well, wow.
20: well, I have to say that uh, i I thought the Terra sky uh, Terror in the Sky was very well produced, and that the uh, you know the data that you collected uh, for this film was very compelling.
2: yeah, that data I, yeah. will actually will actually be um, uh, shown and reviewed by uh, Kevin Knuth, Christopher Altman, and Matthew Sadakis, if i said his name right i always get it wrong uh at the seu conference june 2nd and 3rd they'll be going over the data and sharing it with the public most of the data a lot of it it's going to take a long lot longer to uh go go through but what they do have so far they're they're going to provide to the public
1: now this film comes in just shy of 90 minutes Which is a good length for something, especially when you have films like The Batman, almost three hours. And I thought that was dreary, beyond belief, The Batman. Okay, a lot of people loved it, but I didn't like it. Anyway, it comes in just under 90 minutes. Do you have a lot of stuff in abeyance that you could not deliver in the final print?
3: As far as uh, anomalous recordings, I I don't think that we missed any anomalous recordings. There were just certainly other things that... um My inventions, I I demonstrated more inventions uh, to um, Travis Taylor. Not all of them made the cut because of the the time constraint that we had. I thought that everything was pretty well covered and explained. And a lot of information was conveyed within this movie. That people, when they watch this movie, they're going to say, you know, if I'm here to watch for the process, I'm satisfied. If I'm here to watch to see what, what was gathered, I'm satisfied. It's a beautiful movie from a cinematic standpoint. It covers a lot of ground and it's filled with animation inserts to help viewers understand what's being discussed. So it, it has a lot of guidance, much like that is used in uh Nova PBS programs.
1: And it has captain Kirk.
3: <laughs> <laughs> when I got to meet him, I was uh, it was quite a, you know, being starstruck and, and luckily I only got to speak a few words to him because my mind just switched off. I mean, I was pretty overwhelmed in his presence, of course, because he's William
2: Shatner,
1: <laughs> and William Shatner's ego can overwhelm anyone. Don't
3: get uh, me started.
2: <laughs> uh, but let's just say
3: it's earned ego. It's justifiable. Exactly. I mean, exactly. You, it's like when Muhammad Ali said he was the greatest, and uh, he was. He was able to prove it. I think when somebody has earned that title and Shatner certainly has. I mean, he has been such a major inspiration for scientists today. I can remember when I was about three years old or four years old in the programming and watching it as it was being aired. And I had some difficulty understanding it because I thought it was real. I thought there was a spaceship flying around and, and things like that. But I was very inspired by Shatner and by Leonard Nimoy. And it, got me thinking along the technical lines at a very early age. And I, I think it inspired me to be in, in that sector because of Star Trek. And I've talked to other people who have pursued science, and it's all started from Star Trek.
1: The science of Star Trek. We'll talk more about that because I have a couple of points I wanted to bring up when we get into our premium show after the Paracast for Paracast Plus listeners. But for right now... I don't know who wants to be the one to take it, David or Dave. Tell our listeners if they want to find out more about you guys and a tear in the sky, where did they check you out?
2: I'm
3: only on a couple social media platforms. I'm on Facebook, and then I have a YouTube channel. On my YouTube channel, I just have uh, some night vision astronomy videos and uh, a few random videos, my parrot playing my guitar, those kinds of things. That's really yeah, that. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on other
1: social platforms. And where do we find the film?
2: com, And my Twitter is at David H. Altman. Facebook, David H. Altman.
1: You can find us on Twitter. If you look for the PowerCast, find the PowerCast on Facebook. Find our branded merchandise with the T-shirts and the logos and... The mugs and the caps and everything at the Paracast.shop. The Paracast.shop. If you want to get after the Paracast, sign up for the Paracast Plus at the Paracast.plus for quick sign up. We also include this show free of the network ads. Part of the Paracast Plus special deal. Use the coupon code UFO20, that's UFO20, to save 20% on lifetime and five-year subscriptions, the Paracast.plus. David Altman, Dave Mason, thank you both for joining us on the Paracast.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us.